0: Well, good morning. If this is your first time visiting with us here at Providence, let me just explain what we're doing here. At this point in the service, we want to come and submit ourselves to God's word. We want to submit ourselves to the truth of what he is teaching us through the scriptures. Uh, What we do when we enter into the sermon time, it is not a pep talk, it's not a motivational speech, nor is it meant to be some sort of stand-up comedy routine but it is to truthfully discover what God is saying to us and try to bring, bearing, bring that to bear into our lives. So we're gonna pray now and ask the Lord to, to bring that about. But before we pray, I do wanna point out that for those of you who are part of our small group ministry, there is a typo here on question four. I need to fix that. This is a great example of transmission error. So uh, just keep that in mind a little bit later on in the sermon. But uh, it should be the second part of that question Should read If you have not been a part of discipleship Eliminate the A Not been a part of discipleship What can you do to participate in it Uh, That makes it make sense now Uh, You'll get the authorial meaning And intent at this point from it So let's pray Lord God we do ask That you be the one to teach us That Lord you be the one to, To have your spirit move among us right now As we read these words, as we expound upon them, we pray, Lord, that we would take to heart the meaning of this text so that, Lord, we would truly be a church that seeks to honor you, a people that desire to bring you glory, a people of your own possession. Speak to us, Lord. Work in us. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, this morning, we're continuing to look at Jesus' sermon in Matthew chapter 18. If you will, please turn back there in your Bibles. This is found on page 823 of your pew Bible. And as we look at today's verses, we need to be reminded that they're a part of the greater message of our Lord concerning authority within the relationships of those who believe in him. These verses should not just be taken by themselves, but they should be seen in light of the greater message. So let me forewarn you a little that I'm gonna get into some mechanical details this morning. It's, it's my experience that a good preacher will not only tell you what the text says, but also teaches listeners how he arrived at the meaning of the Bible. In other words, he should be teaching you how to study and interpret the scriptures. The technical term for that is hermeneutics. So let me begin with introducing to you two principles that's going to be important as we look at the rest of this passage. Number one, discover the intention of the author of the book as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Discover the intention of the author of the book as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. The writers of the Gospels, Matthew, Luke, John, Mark, and John, were all trying to convey particular truths to their readers within their time and history. They weren't just writing down a bunch of stories that have no relationship to one another. They have a reason, an intention for their readers. And in Matthew 18, as Matthew records Jesus' sermon, he is conveying our Lord's teaching to the greater audience. We need to discover, what is that? You might think, well, yes, that makes sense. Writers are trying to communicate a message to their audience. But you might be surprised how many people can just Easily remove the words, make it up whatever they want it to say rather than what the author's intended meaning is. So the first principle is discover the author's intended meaning. Number two, and closely related to this, is context is key. Context is key. Now, you've heard me mention that before. If an author has taken the time to write a book, it would be wrong to interpret a sentence or paragraph outside of the surrounding text without seeking to understand the overall meaning. We need to see the author's idea in relationship to all of his words. We see violations of this occur frequently in the media. Some journalist will will give you a sound bite of someone that they interview, usually it'll be a sentence or two that's inflammatory and is going to attract attention, and everyone's going to be up in arms until they discover the quote was out of context. Once they hear what the interviewee said overall, the quote makes perfect sense. We certainly must not do that with the Bible, God's holy word. We must never take it out of context. Now, we're gonna be employing both of those principles as we study verses 10 through 14 this morning. And to help us discover the meaning, allow me to address three controversial areas first. It's gonna help us immensely as we understand this passage and clear up any unneeded confusion. Then once we have those issues aside, we're gonna see what the text has to say for us. Now, I know you engineer types, you're gonna love getting into the nuts and bolts of this, but but for the rest of us, just hang in there. I promise I'm gonna get us out on time, all right? So, issue number one that is likely to create confusion is that verses 12 and 13 are not the same story found in Luke chapter 15. Verses 12 and 13 are not the same story found in Luke chapter 15. In fact, to make this point, if you will, please turn with me to Luke 15. This is found on page 874 of your pew Bible. Now, most liberal scholars will tell you that this is the same story, and that each gospel writer either heard it correctly or incorrectly, depending upon who they think had the original, and some will tell you that both authors were wrong, and they're, they're both myths. Now, we can admit there are a few similarities here, but this is why our intent and context are important. Luke. In his 15th chapter includes the parable of the lost sheep with Jesus' overall teaching about lost things and how one should be grateful when they are found. Let's read these seven verses here. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who have no need for repentance. Now, note immediately after this, you have the parable of the lost coin and then the parable of the prodigal son. All three stories of lost things that are found. So let's admit the similarities with Matthew here. Both stories are told by Jesus in extended discourse. And yes, we have a lost sheep whom the shepherd leaves the main flock to find it. The shepherd also rejoices once the sheep is found. But outside of that, there are considerable differences. The situation in which it's told is one, in Luke, Jesus is speaking with self-righteous Pharisees. In Matthew, he is speaking directly to his disciples. In Luke, Jesus is dining with notorious sinners and tax collectors. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus appears to have his disciples and some children surrounding him. In Luke, Jesus is speaking about how those self-righteous Jews should rejoice over the repentance of kingdom citizens. In Matthew, Jesus is addressing who is the greatest in the kingdom and how believers should relate to one another. And following this story in Matthew, Jesus will speak about church discipline, which calls for the possible rejection of someone who professes to believe. Now, I could go on and speak about the differences in Greek, but I'm going to spare you these are not the same story and they shouldn't be interpreted as though they are context and intention tell us that it is clear that jesus is using a similar object lesson to teach two different lessons that's not unusual for a good teacher to do so let's return back to matthew chapter 18. now second here second point to note if you have a king james or a new king james version of the bible then you noticed that a certain phrase was omitted when we read the English Standard Version aloud. If you have an ESV, you will see there is no verse 11. It skips from 10 to 12. However, verse 11 is in the footnotes of your Bible, or at least it should be, which states, for the Son of Man came to save the lost. Now, the reason it is omitted is because it's not found in the earliest manuscripts of Matthews. It, It appears in later transcriptions. Apparently, a well-meaning scribe inserted the phrase inspired by Luke chapter 19, verse 10, or possibly contemplating the great shepherd of Ezekiel 34, where those words are also found. And I would say by omitting the text, we're recovering the original words. But also be quick to point out that the omitted text is absolutely true. Jesus, the Son of Man, did come to save the lost. That's all over the Gospels. In fact... Matthew wrote similar words in chapter 10, verse 6, and also in chapter 15, verse 24. So no truth is lost by going back to the original. I just don't think that Matthew wrote those words here. So there are no mistakes in God's words, just mistakes by scribes in transmission, and we are blessed by good textual critics that can recover the original. Kind of like my K-Group question. And finally, what about this angel business in Matthew chapter 18, verse 10? See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now there are some who think these angels are the spirits of deceased children. No less than a great person of B.B. Warfield standing believe that. In some people's minds, children turning into angels after death is comforting. Not to me. Angels are spiritual beings. I want my loved ones to experience the resurrection with physical bodies. I want to hold them and embrace them when I see them again. And I don't see anywhere in Scripture where souls become spiritual angels. Then some people use this verse to say that every single person has their own personal guardian angel. Again, I don't think so. And there are four reasons that I don't think that to be the case here. Number one, and I'm gonna get into this a little bit more later, this verse is not speaking about everyone, only those who have childlike faith in Jesus. So it doesn't include everyone. At best, we would say believers might have these guardian angels. Number two, God is not dependent upon his creation, including angels for the personal protection of his people. He may use an angel such as what occurs in Acts chapter 12 with Peter in prison, but he is not limited to an angelic presence for each human being. God is omnipotent and he can do as he pleases, including protecting his people without an angel. Number three, I also agree with D.A. Carson here that if each human or believer is assigned an angel, then what is the angel doing before the face of the father instead of looking after its charge? After all, only God is omnipresent. Angels are not. If they are before the throne, then they're deserting their post. And fourth, and to me, this is a much better solution here. Angels are not only messengers and ministers. The scriptures reveal they can also be witnesses. Let me give you three quick references here. I'm going to read them to you. Luke chapter 12, verses 8 through 9. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. And we also have Jesus saying in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot uh, blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So in light of these verses, I would surmise that Jesus is talking about the angelic witnesses of these little ones spoken of within these verses here. They will testify before the face of the Father whether or not they were despised by other believers. So, we have here already Matthew 18 stands apart from Luke 15. We also have the crucial overall text here with, without the omitted uh, phrase, and we have a fitting understanding of the angels here in this verse. So now that we have those issues out of the way, let's work with the text of these four verses to glean what the Lord intended when he gave them to his disciples. Two weeks ago, we saw that the little ones in this passage refers to believers. These are those who place a childlike faith in Jesus. Their trust is in him. Such believers that humble themselves in this fashion are considered greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus was clear about this in verse five, fellow believers are to welcome one another and receiving another believer, we are receiving them as though we are receiving Jesus. Now, I remember watching this kind of reception happen among children when I took my own kids to the happiest of playgrounds at McDonald's. When you're at a McDonald's with your kids, you're not there for the food, but you're there for the playground and for the Happy Meals, right? And all sorts of people come into McDonald's, right? All sorts of people in various shapes and sizes and shades of color and clothing, they show up. And you give three to five-year-olds just a few minutes to get acquainted in a McDonald's playground, that utopia, you'll discover there is no racism, there is no class distinction. In fact, it wasn't uncommon for my kids to come up to me and introduce their new friend to me and say, she's now my best friend all over 30 minutes of time. How long for believers to welcome one another in such a fashion as that. And in doing so, we're specifically charged here, verse 5, with not causing one another to sin, or the better translation here is to stumble or to be a temptation to sin. That is what the disciples were in danger of with their ambition. They thought they could earn or merit a greater position before God, whereas Jesus seems to propose it's about resting in the pleasure of the Father being his child. I would say we must be careful in our desire to be holy that we are not creating or portraying some kind of legalism that makes it seem if we can actually gain more favor from the Father by acting holy rather than resting in the justifying grace of Christ. But we are to welcome one another, we encourage one another, and we teach one another about the grace of Jesus. And in this process of receiving the little ones, we are not to despise one another, but rather those in the church are to care for each other and to aid each other in our sanctification. I'm not supposed to despise the believer that doesn't have the same skin color as me. I'm not to reject the brother that had a more difficult life than I had and was immersed in immorality where I might have been spared of that. I'm not to reject the sister that speaks a different language from my own or or possibly has a psychological or emotional issue. If they believe in Jesus, I am to love them and care for them regardless of whatever their struggle or their battle with sin may be. And the reason that I do so is because I was loved by a great affection. I was the filthiest and most vile sinner that ever was. And if you go back and and look at my life, how I went back and forth between immorality and then just self-righteous legalism, trying to please God with that, I was despicable. And yet the Lord Jesus loved me. He gave himself up for me. He redeemed me from my slavery of sin, forgave me with his blood and adopted me into his family. How can I not do the same for others? Listen to the Apostle John employ this language of children in his first letter. Here's instructions here regarding personal sin and and how they are to treat one another. If you'd like to follow along, this is 1 John chapter 2. Again, this would be on page 1021 of your pew Bible. See if this is similar to what Jesus is teaching here. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You see how he points the children back to Jesus with childlike faith? Verse 2. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him, there is no cause for stumbling. Same word that we find in Matthew chapter 18, verse 5. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going. Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. We do not despise our brothers and sisters. All of our individual distinctions, they dissolve in the light of the blood of Christ. Christians are to love and to care for each other's sanctification. We are a family, always pointing one another to Jesus and his glorious gospel, not self-righteousness. Otherwise, we're just continuing to sit in darkness, avoiding the very thing that saved us and returning back to the thing that condemned us. Listen to John as he continues. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. There is this interplay that developed among Christians based upon the teachings of Jesus that we're to look after one another like family and not cause each other to stumble. Mature Christians remind younger Christians to dwell in the gospel. So so how are we to care for one another? Like the same kind of compassion of a shepherd going after lost sheep. We don't want them to perish, so we pursue them with the gospel. Our example in this is Christ. Allow me to appeal to similar teaching in John. Again, listen to Jesus describe his sheep in John chapter 11. I am, or excuse me, chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now get this. And I have other sheep, that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Again, context is key. Here, Jesus is speaking to fellow Jews. He has sheep that are not of this fold, meaning he has sheep that are not Jewish. He must bring them in also. And these Gentile believers, along with Jewish believers, will become one flock with one shepherd. They will be united under the banner of the gospel of Jesus. They will not despise one another. They will not cause each other to stumble. Rather, they will receive one another, rejoice that Jesus has found them too, and build one another up in the love of Christ. This is the Father's will. So think through the implications of this. We are to care about the lost sheep. The Lord has made it abundantly clear he has his lost sheep out there. We are to seek them and share the gospel with them. That is why missions is so vital. But when they come to saving faith, is that all that there is? Do we merely say, well, here's a track, believe that, and then go on our merry way? No, we are to receive the new believer. We are to care for one another and instruct one another in the gospel. We are to be discipled and disciple new believers. That is why church planting is so important. If you will, turn with me to Titus chapter 2. This is found on page 998. We can see a very good example of this. If ever there was a people that should be despised or rejected, it would have been the new Christians living on the Isle of Crete. They had been immersed in some of the most self-centered living of any culture. In fact, their entire society was based upon a lie in order to acquire commerce. Rumors had gotten out, fake news, if you will, that Zeus's grave was on the Isle of Crete and people traveled there and made pilgrimages to see it, even though the Cretans knew this was not true. In chapter one, verse 12, Paul used a literary quote to describe them. In fact, it came from a fellow Cretan describing his own people as always liars, Evil beast, lazy gluttons. Not really a good recommendation, right? Probably, Titus wrote a letter to Paul saying, Paul, the Cretans are a lost cause. They embrace faith, but they still have a lack of godliness. You, you want me to quit wasting my time and come back to you? And Paul writes, no, I left you there for a purpose, to find other leaders to promote sound doctrine. Doctrine. Sound doctrine will produce godly lives. To find those that would teach it, and you must teach it. This is why Paul was telling Titus he must preserve authority here. Elders, teach the church. Older men, teach younger men. Older women, teach younger women. He even tells the slaves that they're to be good servants to their masters in chapter 10, verse 10, in order to adorn the gospel. But for me, the climax of the letter is in chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, including the miserable Cretans here. And what has that salvation done? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It's like Paul's famous theme of putting off and putting on. Those types of phrases and waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. What things? What he just said. The gospel. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is important, Titus, Even though the Cretans have come to saving faith, they still need the gospel. They need to learn how to use it to transform their lives. God is going to purify them through it. I left you there to teach them. I want you to appoint others to teach them. I want older guys to teach younger guys, older women to teach younger women. I want the church to be a place of transformation for the glory of God. We are not giving up on the Cretan Christians, Titus. And he's going to reinforce this message in chapter 3, verses 3 through 8 by the way. So if this is the case, and we are to receive and include one another for discipleship, is there ever a, a time or a case when we should give up on a fellow believer?s Well, that's what Jesus is going to address in the next set of verses in Matthew 18, which, Lord willing, we'll get to next week. But in summary, for you, for you, brothers and sisters, Are you pursuing the lost sheep with the gospel? Are you causing others to stumble by not living out the gospel? Are you despising a a brother or a sister for any reason, skin color, political party, economic status, or the fact that they still sin despite that they're saved? Are you being discipled within the body of Christ? If not, why? Is there a good reason why you're not? Are you discipling somebody else in the body? If not, why? Let's repent today. The time is now to put off selfishness within our own lives and allow ourselves to be led by Jesus as we continue to to dive into the riches of his glorious gospel and live it out together. Let's be that shining example to the rest of the world. Let's make our community stand up and take notice. Those people at Providence really love one another, not a single, selfish, ambitious member among them. Those are people that delight in the Lord and in one another, his people. Let us rest in and become what the Lord Jesus secured for us by his precious blood, one flock with one shepherd. Let's pray. Lord, so many times we can get fooled into thinking that there are such distinctions among us that somehow we need something special other than the gospel. That that we need a special church for ourselves, that we we need a, a special message for ourselves. But Lord, it is the gospel that saves. It is the gospel that transforms. And the gospel message is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I would be the first to confess, I am the worst. Lord, we, we recognize, we understand that in our sin, we are helpless. We, we have no recourse. We, we should be looked at as your enemies because we are in rebellion to you. But while we were yet sinners, you sent your son into the world to save us, to put himself on the cross, to receive in place of us the full wrath that we deserve for each and every one of our sins. And so, Lord, may we by faith embrace that. May we believe that. May we understand the mercy and the grace that you've given us, so much so that it would cause us to be graceful and merciful to others. May we never despise another believer. May we always constantly pursue one another, have packed compassion for one another. And Lord, may we be a shining visible example of your church. May we reflect your glory as, as we show the outside world that something supernatural has happened to us. Something is different about us in the way that, that we love you and in the way that we love one another. BY THIS, ALL MEN WILL KNOW THAT WE ARE YOUR DISCIPLES, IF WE HAVE LOVE FOR ONE ANOTHER. AND SO, LORD, WE PRAY THAT YOU WOULD LEAD US IN THIS. MAY WE FOLLOW THE EXAMPLE OF OUR LORD JESUS. MAY WE SET OUR EYES UPON HIM, THE FOUNDER AND THE perfecter OF OUR FAITH. AND LORD, MAY WE EMULATE HIM. AND WE THANK YOU, LORD, FOR WHAT HE HAS DONE IN OUR LIVES. MAY ALL THE GLORY GO TO HIM according to his finished work alone. Amen.